Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark once again. Once again, we have the privilege of sitting under the authority of God's Word. Last week, we looked at the event that we said kind of marked the beginning of what we're calling Act 3 in the book of Mark. And that is the events surrounding the passion and the suffering and the death and then the resurrection, of course, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 11 begins with the triumphal entry where Jesus enters into Jerusalem and is heralded by that crowd that had gathered, some of which were, had been following him likely for perhaps many weeks. Others, many, many others who were gathering there for Passover in Jerusalem. And they proclaimed Christ and they shouted these words from the Psalms, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Many of them unknowingly and maybe perhaps a few knowingly proclaiming him as the Messiah. As we think about our Lord Jesus, and as I was thinking about this text, I was reminded of a passage that, I'm, that I hope is familiar to you from the introduction to the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, in those first 18 verses, he says he, he is, it's, it's really a prelude to his Gospel. And he's talking about the Lord Jesus, um, and he says in verse 11 that Christ came unto his own, but his own received him not. And we see that very vividly displayed in our text this morning. We see the rejection of Christ by the Jewish Jewish leaders and this growing animosity that we've seen progressing and growing and and kind of reaching a greater intensity and just it seems to be getting to a boiling point. And we see that um, even accelerated in this text this evening. Many, as we said um, last week, received Christ with gladness, but the leaders rejected him, and by week's end, they would be eagerly calling for his death. Before we read this text, I want to lay out a couple things um, that, a couple of terms that I think will help us, um, and as we, as we look at this text, which is, is, is very interesting and, and has been um, commented on extensively by commentators. Um, one of those terms is an enacted prophecy or an enacted parable. In other words, it's acted out. And it is a prophecy that is not just proclaimed, but it is proclaimed through an action or an activity. Secondly, the other term I want to put before you, and I can't remember if I've told you about this yet or not, but that is something called a Markin sandwich. A Markin sandwich. Markin meaning that it is unique to the book of Mark. And it is a sandwich in that, that Mark in his literary style will, will begin telling us something from the account of our Lord Jesus. And then he'll interrupt that and tell us something else. And then he goes back to the first story. And we see this tonight in the, the withering of the, fle- the, the cursing of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, and then when he reflects upon the withering of the fig tree that he has cursed. And we see how those two events interpret the other. So 
there, there's a technical term for it, but I won't burden you with that because Mark and Sandwich is much more memorable to us, and, and I, I think it will help us as we think about this text. I was telling my, my, my family about this, and they said, well, are we having a sandwich supper to go along with the Mark and Sandwich? And I said, well, unfortunately, no, we're not. However, maybe it will help you remember if you go home a little hungry after church that you took, you're taking a Mark and Sandwich home with you from the message this evening. So I would like us to consider this passage under the following three points. The cursing of the tree, and, and this is very close to what may be your headings in your Bible. The cursing of the tree, the cleansing of the temple, and then the counsel given or the instruction given in the lesson of the fig tree. So let us look to God's word, but before we do, let us look to God in prayer and ask his blessing upon the reading of his word. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you, recognizing that that we are your creation and you have bestowed great mercy and blessing upon us, but apart from you, Lord God, we are nothing. And Lord, you have blessed us so richly And you've blessed us with your word. And Lord, as we look to your word tonight, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would apply it to our lives. Lord, we need it. We we hunger and thirst after righteousness yet. And Lord, as as we look at your word, we realize that we fall so short. So Lord, help us. Give us understanding of this text that 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 has been criticized even by Bible scholars. Lord, as as not being true and not being faithful to who you were, Lord Jesus. But Lord, help us to see Christ within it. Christ exalted and, and Christ in his goodness and mercy coming to his people. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The, the passage that's printed in your bulletin, I believe, says verses 12 to 25. But we're going to step one verse back and look at verse 11. So we will be beginning with verse 11 of Mark 11. And he entered the temple and went into the... And he entered Jerusalem, excuse me, and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, <clears throat> when they came from Bethany, he was hungry... And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, 
but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And if you are reading from another version besides the ESV, you may have verse 26, which says, But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word this evening. Now this passage seems, it may seem strange to us. And as I've already mentioned, it has been the the, the source of much discussion among commentators. Now we have we are used to seeing Jesus do miracles. Mark likes to tell us about the miracles that Jesus has done. But there's something different about this miracle that's easily seen early on. Because so far we have seen Jesus doing good in the, in, in the miracles. He has raised the dead. He has healed the sick. He has restored sight. He has calmed the waves and the raging seas. He has cast out demons. But what we have here is literally a miracle of destruction upon this tree. Now, really, it's the, it's the only time I think we can, can call it a, a destructive miracle, with perhaps the exception of when Jesus cast the legions of demons out of the man who called himself legion, for there were many demons within him, and the demons actually appealed to Christ and said, cast us into the swine, and he did, and the swine ran off the cliff into the sea. But this is, that was, there was good that resulted from this. But this is a miracle of destruction, if you will. Now, that fact alone, I think, has given many people heartburn over this text. And this is especially true of critics and those who are already skeptical. If, if you study very many commentaries, you'll quickly learn that there are people that have the audacity to comment upon God's word and don't take it as God's word. That don't really believe that it is God's word, yet they treat it as perhaps an ancient text, but they don't really treat it as God's word. And, and just as an aside, I, I think it's important here to say that as believers in Christ, we must approach God's word with faith, seeking understanding. Pastor Greco says every Lord's Day morning that the word of the Lord is completely inerrant, it is completely authoritative, and it's completely sufficient. I hope I'm quoting you right in that. And, and usually gets a hearty amen from Daryl back there. And that's good, because we do believe that. And if there's things that are difficult in God's word, we have to approach it as God's word. And if we wrestle with it, we need to recognize that, that we sit under its authority. That it still is authoritative over us. It is inerrant, it, because it is God's word. So we need to approach this text with that mindset. So if, if we approach it with skepticism, if we nurture our doubt, and if we say, well, it seems to say this, but I just don't like that, then we fall into error. And that's what so many 
commentators have done about this text. One of those was a, a, a noted philosopher from the, the previous century, Bertrand Russell, who said, I cannot, find, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some people known to me in history. In other words, he put other people in history above the Lord Jesus Christ, above our sinless Savior. And this text gave him heartburn because of that. There were others who professed to believe in God, who call themselves theologians, and have wondered at the wisdom of Christ in this account. Well, so what is happening here? What does this strange, odd text that, that seems to sometimes, in, in some ways at least, be somewhat antithetical to the kindness and graciousness of our Lord Jesus? What does it teach us? Well, let's think about it. We, we backed up to verse 11 in the reading of this. We had, we had looked at that previously and, and had that um, added on to our text from last week, but we didn't really deal with it. But it seems to kind of be a precursor to the accounts that we read today. Because after his triumphal entry, Jesus enters the temple, and it, it seems kind of odd. He just looks around and then leaves. But what is he getting ready to do? He's getting ready to cleanse the temple. So there is significance to what he does there in verse 11. He looked around. It was late. He went to Bethany with the twelve. Now remember who lived at Bethany. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who Jesus had raised from the dead. Very dear friends of our Lord. And it was only about two miles away from Jerusalem. And so that was probably where Jesus was staying. He was was going to Bethany in the evening. And on the following day, it says in verse 12, when they came from Bethany, here Jesus is with his disciples going to Jerusalem, and they see this fig tree. And the text tells us that Jesus was hungry. Um, So he sees this fig tree. Mark tells us it's it's in full leaf. It has the appearance of full growth. And they get to it, they walk up to it, and as they approach it, they realize that it is only leaves. There are no figs upon this tree. It does indeed have leaves, uh, perhaps a, a lush growth of leaves, but it only has leaves. It's all leaves and no fruit. But then the text really gets interesting because Mark tells us in no uncertain terms that it's not the season for figs. So why then does Jesus expect to see figs when it's not the season for figs? And then Jesus just immediately curses the tree. May no one eat figs from you ever again. What is going on? And Mark is careful to note in verse 14 that the disciples heard it. So all this happened right there. They were right there. They knew what was going on. So why does Jesus expect figs when it was clearly not the season? Now, commentators offer a lot of opinions on this. Some say that there are early figs in May, um, and, and there, there's, there, there's like an early growth of figs, but the, but the best figs and the real harvest happens in, in later, late summer, early autumn, in August, September. But there's, there's a possibility of figs the early Uh, crop, if you will. But this is in Passover time. This is probably around March or April. It's not the time even to expect that early harvest of figs. 
Some say that there's a type or a species of figs that, that bear fruit early. We don't really know. Mark doesn't tell us. Perhaps Jesus was hungry and he, he was just simply thinking, boy, it'd be nice if there were some figs on this tree that had all this lush green leaves. We really don't know. But what we do know is the lesson that's here. And the reason we can see it is because the way Mark puts these two stories together in this Mark and Sandwich to help us understand what's happening. For you see, um, the prophets of old would sometimes enact a prophecy. I don't know if you remember, but Ezekiel, in the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 5, the Lord told him to do something very strange that was very, a very vivid illustration of what God was going to do. God told Ezekiel in Ezekiel 5 to shave his head and his beard and then take that pile of hair and divide it in thirds and burn one third of it, chop up one third of it, and scatter the other third to the wind. And that was what God was going to do. That was an enacted prophecy upon God's people there in Ezekiel 5. And so this is similar because in the Old Testament, God calls Israel a fig tree. Israel is the fig tree. One commentator has said that it was likely a fig tree that the serpent used to tempt Adam and Eve. Because what was it that they used to clothe themselves afterwards? After they realized they were naked, after they had sinned and fallen, they sewed together fig leaves. So just as in the Old Testament, Israel is this fig tree. She has the appearance of health, of vitality, and yet there is no fruit. And sadly, this is true for many in the church today. Many have the the appearance of fine and hearty spiritual growth, but yet there is no fruit to show the evidence of spiritual life. What about you? Are you concerned with looking good, having the lush leaves of fine Christian appearance, or are you concerned with producing spiritual fruit? And then Mark, in his characteristic, sometimes abrupt style, just moves straight forward to the next section in the cleansing of the temple. And here we begin to see how this middle episode interprets the other Just as there are Old Testament allusions in this first set of verses, there's even more in this next set in verses 15 through 19 where we see Jesus cleansing the temple. I think it's important for us to think about the setting of of the situation that Jesus was in. I read and, and listened to a sermon that, that spoke of, and if you have an ESV study Bible, you, you can see the, a picture of the temple. And, and it wasn't just the temple itself, it was the whole temple mount. And in that illustration, we are told that the temple mount, the whole complex, takes up about one-sixth of the, of the area of the city of Jerusalem. And the court of the Gentiles, which was the outer court where the Gentiles could enter... And it was designed to be a place where they could draw near unto God if they wanted to worship the God of the Israelites, the true and living God. They had this court of the Gentiles. I had no idea until I studied this how big that it was. It was 500 by 325 yards 
which this commentator said equals to 35 acres. If you can imagine an area that large to receive Gentiles within it. And you also have to think of the enormity of the number of people that were coming to Jerusalem at this time. It, it could have been as many as two million people converging either, either within or spilling out of the city at this time of Passover. And so you think about the sacrifices that are involved with that many people at Passover. Not only that, but you also had this temple tax that they had to pay that was required of every male. And it couldn't be given in Roman coinage. It had to be a specific coin, a half a shekel of Tyrian money that they had to give as their temple tax. So think about it. Two million people converging on a, not a city that really wasn't that big. They all had to bring sacrifices and they all had to pay this tax. And so it, it made sense that there were people there that would provide the sacrifices. It's, it's kind of like when, when we used to go visit family that were maybe um, seven or eight hours away. And we would be getting together to pre- prepare a meal you know, and, and, you know, my wife and I would have this discussion, well, do we buy the potatoes here or do we, you know, and, you know, risk them getting damaged on the, on the way or we just, you know, buy it while, when we get there? Well, it's much more convenient to buy it when you get there. And when you're talking about a sacrifice, the lamb and, and whatever you were sacrificing had to be perfect. It couldn't have a blemish. And so if you you know, transported this lamb for maybe several days to get to Jerusalem, there was great risk in, in it being blemished in some way. And so there was a, a practical reason that they had the money changers. There was a practical reason why they had these, these individuals selling the sacrifices, the animals. So it wasn't the, that, that Jesus was saying these people shouldn't exist, but it's where they were working it's where they were peddling their, their wares, where they were, were selling and exchanging this money. It was in that outer court, in the court of the Gentiles. Now, there, there is evidence that probably a few years previous to this, they, had not, they did not do this. They were across the valley on the Mount of Olives, in a different location, away from the place of worship. But here they had brought this into a place that was God's house, that was a place to worship. It was a place for the Gentiles, the people of the nations, who wanted to draw near to God. That place was taken up with merchandising, with selling, with exchanging money. And not only that, probably there was a lot of price gouging along with that, where they charged extra and they didn't have a a fair rate of exchange in, in the exchanging of the money. And so what does Jesus do? He, he bursts into the temple. He drove those out who sold and those who bought. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those that sold pigeons. And he wouldn't even allow anyone to carry anything through. Just, just imagine the, the chaos of this moment where Jesus is, 
is throwing these tables over. Imagine coins sprinkling across the stone floor, pigeon cages rolling, the dust and the pigeons flying, lambs bleeding and running, angry merchants wondering who in the world this is and why in the world he is upsetting their trade. Chaos in the court of the Gentiles. Jesus even confronts those who've taken a shortcut on their foot journey through the courtyard as they carry their goods back to their their place, their hotel, or their camp. And why is this? It's because of Christ's zeal and passion for his father's house. And it's because this area was for the Gentiles. It was for those who were not God's people by birth, but wanted to draw near to him. Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56, where God has spoken of the, of the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. And he will bring them, it says, to his holy mountain and will make them joyful in his house of prayer. And then at the end of Isaiah 56, 7, he says, God says that his house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples or all nations. And then he tacks on another quote from a different passage of scripture. Turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 7. If I could, I'd just like to read this because it's such, it helps, is so helpful as we think about the context of what Jesus is saying, where he says that you have, have turned it into a den of robbers. Jeremiah 7, starting with verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there his word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds... If you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave you, gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. What is Jesus saying here? What have they done? What have the men of Judah done? They have committed trespasses. They have broken God's law. We, we read there just this, this, this quick, long list of, of various of God's commands that they have broken. And what do they do? They seek refuge in the temple like a band of robbers that, that go out marauding and, and wrecking havoc on others. And then they retreat to their robber's cave. And, and Yahweh, God, is saying here in Jeremiah that that you men of Judah are like that, except you're fleeing to the very temple for safety. And then Jesus is pulling that in, and he's saying, you who are defiling my house here have made it a den of robbers. He's saying, you're like those men of Judah that Jeremiah prophesied against. You are defiling my house in the same way. And it is no doubt 
that, that they knew the context that Jesus was, was drawing from in that day. Jesus has, in one action and statement, purified the temple. But he's also forecasted the destruction of the temple and really all of its sacrificial system. This was really the beginning of the end of the temple sacrifice. Jesus has challenged the Jews in John 2. He records it where he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And that was used against him in his trial in Mark 14. Jesus is the true temple. And we've talked about how the chief priests and scribes were upset. If they weren't upset before, they surely are now. Verse 18 tells us that they heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him. They feared him, it says, but the people were astonished. And I imagine so. After driving out those who who were selling there in God's house and the money changers, the people were astonished. And then Jesus returns to Bethany. We've seen the cursing of the tree and the cleansing of the temple. And then we see the counsel given in the lessons of the fig tree. Peter says, as he reflects upon this, when they probably, it seems like the next day, maybe Tuesday morning of Passion Week, they come and they see this tree and it's, it's withered. And even if a tree dies, you know it doesn't die overnight. But this one did. This was a miraculous uh, act of Jesus upon this fig tree, which represented Israel. And, and Peter says, look, he, the, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. He was amazed. And it, was, it was miraculous. And Derek Thomas, in his, in his sermon on this, he had, he had reflected upon these New Testament critics and these liberal scholars that discounted this. And he said, and all those New Testament critics are crying around the base of it. <laughs> in other words, you know, they're, they're saying, oh, this is terrible. See what Jesus, the terrible thing Jesus did to this tree. But Jesus was teaching the disciples. And he's teaching us a solemn lesson. There's a lesson for Israel Because they rejected Christ. They rejected his teaching. They followed their own way. And they defiled God's house. And God's judgment is falling upon them for this. We see also a lesson for us here. That if we reject Christ. We too will be judged. If we follow our own way. We cannot call ourselves followers of Christ. We can only have one master. So I ask you tonight, where is your heart? Does your heart wholly and truly want to follow the Lord Jesus? Do you want to exalt Christ with your life? Or are you all leaves and no fruit? What, what is this fruit that, that I'm talking about? Well, I used to hear that phrase and I used to think, well, it, it means new converts, okay? The, the Christian is supposed to share the gospel and win others to Christ. And that's true. We should. And that should be our prayer. Um, Daryl reflected that this evening in his prayer. And, and we should have that burden, that intolerable passion to, to see the lost one to Christ. But that's not all it is. It is, it is living out your faith. It is a life of faithfulness. It is obedience to God. It is loving others within the church. It is serving others for the sake of the gospel. That's what we're talking about in fruitfulness. 
And that's what we need to strive to have, and not just a tree full of good-looking leaves. Finally, there's a lesson of prayer here. And I deal with this just somewhat briefly, but Jesus takes this on somewhat of a surprising turn and immediately begins teaching his disciples about prayer. He tells them the first thing he responds to Peter's mark of, of you know, incredulous uh, surprise that, that this tree has withered. Jesus answered him, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And then Jesus goes on in his teaching. But notice, some, some have taken this and, and run far afield with it. And it has become, these verses, in fact, have become kind of the, the bedrock of, of those that say, well, anything we want no matter what it is or for what purpose it is, we can have it. If it's a new Mercedes, you can have it. You know, you just need to name it and claim it. That's not what this is saying. Remember the first thing he says, have faith in God. We recognize that all our prayers are made to God. All our prayers should be for his glory. Our prayers should reflect the Lord's prayer that says, thy will be done, not my will be done. So we must ask according to his will, seeking his glory. We can and we should pray big, bold prayers for the sake of the kingdom, but not for ourselves. Our faith is in God. We must pray with faith, but we also must pray with forgiveness. The final verse that is there in your text, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. The central word there is forgive. We should never expect our prayers to be answered if we are harboring unforgiveness. Let me say that again. We should never expect our prayers to be answered if we are harboring unforgiveness. The principle is that forgiven people forgive. For we have been been forgiven much. Two things that should characterize the life of believers. That is faith and forgiveness. So Jesus is saying here, and we see Jesus doing this. He He is forging out a new people. Not just a people based upon their birth or ethnicity. He is building his church, his people from every tribe and tongue and people group. This is not just about where you were born or what your ethnicity is. The, the message of the gospel is for the nations, for people of every tribe and tongue and people group. And he has forecasted the end of the temple sacrifices because in just a matter of days, he, Jesus Christ, will become the fulfillment of all of those millions of sacrifices that have been made over the last thousands of years of Old Testament history. Jesus is nearly ready to be the ultimate sacrifice. And he's forecasting the end of the temple because he is the temple. And that's why Jesus came. So that you and I and all those who come to him by faith, confessing and trusting in him alone for salvation, can be saved. And finally, there's also a warning for the church in this. Remember, God has always preserved his people, and God always will preserve his people. 
That as we see here and have seen down through history, that if the people who have enjoyed God's blessings turn away from him and do not truly serve him, then God will raise up others that will. We saw that in the time of the Reformation. We've seen it repeatedly since then. We must be a people who wholly follow the Lord. For if we are to call ourselves disciples of the Lord Jesus, then we must follow him truly and completely. Amen. Let us pray.